You're listening to a Wheeler Centre podcast. Really, I'm an introvert pretending to be an extrovert. Actually, no, no, that's not right. I'm an extrovert so worried about looking like a show-off that I present as a faux introvert masquerading as what I really am so I can pass it all off as an act if anybody calls me on it. This event was presented as part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas program. Thank you, it's really great to be here. And uh, Julie, I'd like to open with a poem, if that's all right. I can't think of anything I'd love more. Not from the book. No, this is from um, Jimmy Stewart and his poems, ladies and gentlemen. A very slim volume. Anyone know Jimmy Stewart? I ask occasionally. Do you mind if I... Uh, this is one of my favourite poems. Please. I think it will be an interesting window into my psyche. Can't wait. All right. This will be fun. Bo, all right, here we go. Here we go. By, uh, by Jimmy Stewart. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, hang on. He, he, never, he, never, he never came to me when I would call unless I had a tennis ball or he fought like it. Mostly didn't come at all. When he was young, he never learned to heal or sit or stay. He did things his way. Discipline was not his bag, but when you, when you were with him, things sure didn't drag. He'd dig up the rose bush just to spite me, and when I'd grab him, he'd turn and bite me. This is actually written by Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> he bit lots of folks from day to day. The delivery boy was his favorite prey. The gas man wouldn't read our meter. He said we owned a real man-eater. He's rhymed meter with eater there. <laughs> he set the house on fire, but the story's long to tell. Suffice to say that he survived and the house survived as well. And I'll skip a few. <laughs> long. Here we go. He knew, he, knew, he, 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 he knew where the tennis balls were upstairs, and I'd give him one for a while, and he'd push it under the bed with his nose and fish it out with a smile. And before very long, he'd tire of the ball, and he'd, he'd be asleep in his corner in no time at all. And there were nights when I'd, I'd feel him climb up on our bed and lie between us, and I'd pat his head. And there were nights when I'd... I'd feel this stare, and I'd wake up, and he'd be sitting there, and I'd reach out my hand, and I'd stroke his hair, and sometimes I'd feel him sigh, and I think I know the reason why. He, 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 he would wake up at night, and he would have this fear of the dark, of life, of lots of things, and he'd, he'd be glad to have me near. And now he's dead. And there are nights when I think I feel him climb up on our bed and lie between us and I pat his head. And there are nights when I think I feel that stare and I reach out my hand to stroke his hair, but he's not there. Oh, how I wish that wasn't so. I'll always love a dog named Bo. There you go. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean McAuliffe bringing Jimmy Stewart to life. How lovely. Is that a metaphor for That's, what we're uh, about to do? I don't know. Do Dead dog. Hope Dead not. dog. Well, it's up to you. All right. Now I'm going to read my entire book so you don't have to buy God. it. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the Melbourne launch of Tripping Over Myself, 
uh, a book written by uh, Sean McAuliffe, or Mikalef, as we like to call him. I would like to acknowledge before we begin that this event is taking place on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. And this event is, of course, part of the Wheeler Centre Spring Fling. We've all got our spring flings on. A short series of Big and Ideas, which is uh, on until Friday, the 11th of November. And look, these things don't put themselves on, obviously. Spring Fling is supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, Sean. Yeah, through Creative Victoria and the City of Melbourne. Also afterwards... Sean will be signing books. If you make your way into the foyer, you will be shown where to go to, to do that. And we will be doing... Um, we will be doing some questions uh, in the last 15 minutes of the hour. So start thinking about questions that you may have already about Sean or that we're about to discover. Now, Sean... Hello. This is your eighth book. Is it? I, no, yeah. I, I literally had forgotten. I hadn't realised I was that prolific. Yeah. And Sean highly encouraged uh, me not to read it. Have I? Haven't I? Well, you've got notes there. I'm but are they real? I suspect you... I thought I was telling you a story which happens to be in the book and you were just looking blankly at me. I so know. I suspect you haven't read it. I know. So maybe I haven't read it at all. Yeah. But it's a memoir... It's about you. Well done, yes. And what's interesting is that when I announced on Twitter that Home Delivery, my television show uh, that was, was coming to an end, a show where I take people back to their childhood homes and their schools and I ask them about their lives, you had the gall to message me and say, oh, really? Well, I would have done it if you'd asked. I was never asked, Julia. I... We asked you five times you to do the show. <laughs> You lying hound. I was never Five. asked once. Five times. No. To the point where, you know, because every year you ask, you've got your wish list of people and you go, oh, well, he's busy with mad as hell. We won't annoy him. By the third time, we thought he is going to just crack the shit soon. I swear, no one asked me. Well, your agent is clearly not sending things on because five times, and we finally gave up because we thought he doesn't want to do it. I said no to Arne Doe. Okay. <laughs> I said, under no circumstances oh. is he going to paint well, my picture. Well, if I had, if we'd taken you to Adelaide, if I'd had that chance, yeah. where would you have taken us, do you think? Well, I'd taken your mum and dad, still living in the same house that <gasps> I grew up in. Oh, See, no. it would have been a great scene. I, I know. Gone in there, I would have shown you to my right, there's a picture of my mother and her brother when they were very small. I would, I would say, isn't that interesting? They colourised that picture. That's very good. That's good. You would have cut that out. Yeah, sure. I would sure. have told you that. And then I'd go back, right out the back into the rumpus room, which was my room. Oh, and uh, uh, and I think the posters are still on the on the walls there that I had up. I had a picture of Groucho Marx. No. And next to a picture of Olivia Newton-John. Those are my two oh. main interests. And it was Olivia Newton-John from the country and Western years, ladies yes. and gentlemen. This is pre-physical. Yeah, please, Mister, please on the banks. I mean, of course, we would have sung that in the lounge room instead, of course, of of doing a home delivery with me. He did his own home delivery of me on uh, Mad as Hell where the wonderful Emily Tahini impersonated me. She did. I wasn't worried about that. I did, wo I did wonder because, you know, did sometimes you? You, do, you, do, you, you do impressions on the show. Uh, well, well, I don't physically do them, but others do. Emily, Emily does many impressions. Yes. Uh, Stephen Hall does many impressions. And sometimes they don't go down that well. Who's, who's not been happy with a... Well, of course, it would be Im impolitic of me sure. to say who... It was Dave Hughes. Yeah, Dave Hughes was, <laughs> wasn't very happy about the, about the excellent impression that Stephen did of him. Um, uh, oh. Annabelle Crabb? 
She didn't like it. No, no, she... She would have loved it. She hasn't said anything about it. Annabelle was just here. Yeah. In fact, she might be in the building. I might ask her. Yeah. Uh, did anyone come and see the Helen Garner one just that was just on? Oh, I mean, awesome. Really? Did you... Have you just sat there and not bought another ticket? Uh, how, how did she go? Did she get, get big laughs? Ms. Garner? <laughs> Um, anyway, so I was concerned about Annabelle seems fine, seemed fine with it. And, you know, because I know Annabelle, and I know you, and I didn't, I didn't you know, we don't want to ask permission because that feels weird. Sure. Uh, but you were very nice because you volunteered. You said, I enjoyed the show very much. I didn't even have to ask you. So. No, no, no. It was not, I enjoyed it. It was amazing. So someone asked the other day on Twitter, to, uh, asked you, what would I do in Adelaide? And you said, a ride on the Popeye, water slide at Glenelg, selfie with the giant Scotsman outside Scotty's Motel. Yeah. Waving at the statue of the King Neptune outside that service station as you're driving to Victor Harbour. Yep. The list is endless and the end is listless. <laughs> That's good advice. Sound advice. Sound. Oh, it's, uh, Sammy Shara, I hope he takes me up on all... Does he? Yeah, yeah. Um, when we took HG, Greg Pickhaver, back to Adelaide, and he is older than you, he's 15 years older, his, his revulsion of Adelaide was visceral. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean, it was, it was interesting. No, I mean, sometimes places... I was a lawyer with his brother. True. Yeah, with his younger brother. He wow. He and I were contemporaries. Oh, there you go. So our experiences would be very similar. But uh, he doesn't like Adelaide. Well, it was really interesting. And we don't all love where we come from. We just don't. Did you have that? Uh, uh, did Adelaide feel like that to you? No, I, I have uh, I have great... Uh, all my friends are there and uh, and my family is still there and... Uh, I would happily be there if it wasn't for the fact the work is here, you know, mm. so I, I kind of miss it a bit. Well, you haven't got any work now. Do you think you might move back? <laughs> yeah, there's nothing for me here. Once this interview's done, <laughs> I'll be on the overland. Well, we've both been let go, haven't we? <laughs> we, we have, well, no, I can't, we can't. Well, you've walked away. We can't let ourselves go. No. Well, well, we, I all, didn't. we all do from time to sure, time. Sure, we let ourselves go. go. <laughs> Um, but um, anyway, we'll get on to it a bit later. Um, now, what's interesting is that you did do Who Do You Think You Are instead. And that's not sort of recent, you know, history. It's far back history. And I watched it. And it's a very foreboding beginning where they're saying, and as Sean McAuliffe is heading towards 50, he feels it's the time he might like to go down the avenue and find out. Is that what it was? They did say that about everybody. Gee, I get... Did I you watched that show. They said, do you want to do Who Do You Think You Are? I said, I'd be delighted. And I did a bit of research. I watched the episode with Jeremy Irons. And I thought, wow, look at that. He's on a horse. He's on a horse galloping through uh, the glen in front of his castle in Ireland. It was a great opening. I thought, that's fantastic. And then they came around to do me. They said, what, 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 how do you want to open? I said, well, I'll take the dog for a walk on the beach. <laughs> we have a Bichon Frise. Uh, so it wasn't quite as impressive no, an opening. I don't, think, I don't think Jeremy didn't even have his shirt on. It's that impressive. So mine was a little more low-key compared with Jeremy's. Yeah, but you were quite emotional in it. I did, yeah. I know I hate that. I mean, I don't like particularly... Up to that point, I don't think I've ever been myself on television. Mm. Um, something I've avoided because I'm a sketch comic, so I, I'm used to you know playing characters, mm. have an actorly approach to being on TV. Uh, so yes, it was quite interesting to go over there. And uh, this, my father comes from Malta, so I went to Malta and visited his street. And uh, then there was a moment where they took me to the police station. Uh, to do with the show, I should hasten to add, uh, to show me the police reports that, was, that were filled out the night of the Germans bombed uh, different times, different times. There's a bit of German people here today. Absolutely. We're all friends now. Um, 
Because the Italians used to bomb yeah. uh, Malta. They used to yeah. bomb Malta. They didn't really care so much. They, they were Italian or whatever. We'll drop it in the water, you know. We won't, won't drop it on your house. See you later, everybody. Goodbye, goodbye. You know, and they were friends and they changed sides and that's fine. The Germans took it a lot more seriously. You know, they got some munitions. They're not going to waste any money. So they blew the roof off Dad's uh, mm. house when he was little and uh, killed a lot of the people down the street. And there were a lot of cousins, a lot of cousins and uncles, and a lot of, a lot of the family tree uh, was lopped off there, sadly. And, uh, yeah, and I remember reading McAuliffe after McAuliffe after McAuliffe mm. dead, children too. You know, yeah, that just really, really got me. So I... I did weep, and then at the end I said, can you cut that out? I don't know whether I want people to see that. But they love that sort of stuff. They push in with yes. the camera. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, and I've got a tear coming out of this eye. I'm thinking, I've got to keep not coming out of the right eye because the camera's right there. So if I turn my head to the right, they won't see the tear. But they moved in and moved around slightly, and then they, they went to a minor key on the piano. Yes. You know? I was dead at that point. That brings they actually it on. played it while I was uh, looking at the police report. Wow. Bought a, bought a piano in and was playing the, <laughs> just the minor key until I wept. Is all that in the book? Because I haven't read it. No, I left that out. No, great. No. So, um, so because we're describing you, perhaps you could um, read out this lovely description of you um, as an adult. Well, you haven't read it. Here I'm happy are. to read no, it. Too. So, there it is. It starts there. And I've sort of marked where I want you to stop on the next page. Uh, so, where do I start? From the four? Yes. Okay. Go. For someone who found it rather hard to strike up a conversation with four or five people after a tutorial, I had no trouble acting the goat in front of a thousand strangers wearing my father's tracksuit and my mother's old wig. Even today, I'm more comfortable being on than not when I'm with others. People assume I'm an extrovert because of the way I carry on on TV. But really, I'm an introvert pretending to be an extrovert. Actually, no. No, that's not right. I'm an extrovert so worried about looking like a show-off that I present as a faux introvert masquerading as what I really am so I can pass it all off as an act if anybody calls me on it. That's not to say there was nothing for me to be painfully shy about when I was younger. It's just that I was self-aware enough to know that people found my natural clumsiness or the way I looked funny, and so I could lean into it now and then uh, for a laugh. It's exactly the sort of meta-paradox that makes me such a fascinating subject for a book. <laughs> thank you. applause. I mean, that's uh, a lovely no, beginning, you. isn't it? Thank you. Thank you. So that's all you've read? Yep, that's it. That's all. But, that's I, all but I mean, that's tr a lot of performers are like that. Are they? Yep. That's good. That's comforting to know. Mm. I think a lot of performers... I, you know, I was trying... Because I, I muse on this in the book as to what it is that compels somebody to you know, require the validation of strangers mm -hmm. and uh, why do they take to the stage? I think there's lots of different reasons. I think some people genuinely feel they have a gift to share. Other people, other people feel that the audience gives them a reason to be. But for me, it was more like this is what well, I'm comfortable. I really, I love the warming effect of laughter. And I think it's probably because that's, we weren't a terribly demonstrative family, so that's the way we showed our affection for each other, was by telling jokes or by laughing or by being funny or whatever. So I'm, I'm kind of just as happy being in, in the audience laughing as I am on stage having that experience uh, roll over me. So, um, yeah, I don't know whether there's any one answer to that. Um, but, yeah, maybe we're all cut from the same cloth, but in, in different way, ways, perhaps. In different ways. Um, when the, when the publishers came to you, did they say it must be a tell-all book? Uh, like, what were, the, were, there, were there some boundaries? 
Um, they said that it has to be a tell something book. <laughs> um, no, they didn't. No, not really. They didn't say, oh, we want to hear. Well, in fact, I don't talk about rudeness or sexual intercourse at any point. <laughs> I don't talk about that because no. that's filthy and a sin. <laughs> and uh, you don't want to read about that. You don't want to think about that. In fact, I'm sorry I put the thought in your head. You know what we're all thinking now? I know. Awkward, that's yeah. right. You're thinking about me naked. Yeah. And that's more a comment on you than it is me. And you're probably thinking, Julie, you're thinking, oh, Julie and Sean know each other. They probably, they probably have had sex. Yeah. You're probably thinking they that. Have, well, probably how have, dare you? How dare you? How dare you? Oh. Oh, God. Quickly. Yeah, quick, yeah later. But, yeah, so, I mean, it's funny with the memoir. What are the boundaries? You know, where are you going to go? There's so much to tell. I didn't do home delivery. I probably should have. It would have been so much easier. I would have had it all in my head. You know what? We what? even, when I told my producer, oh, Sean's now just gone. I would have done it. We almost tried to add an extra episode really? onto our final series. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I don't think it was couldn't available. Couldn't have done it anyway. No. Now. No. So what were the boundaries for the book? Well, I, look, you know, there, there were none really. It was like, well, what would you, what would you like to do? And I said, well, I, I'd like to talk about comedy. That's really what the book that I wanted to do, was to talk about comedy and why I love it so. Um, but when I found that when I was writing about it, I, I couldn't help but include some context. So that was why I like it and why I'm drawn to it. Um, the fact that I had an appetite for it, I found kind I thought, well, why do I have an appetite for it? And why do I have a, an ability? I think I'm a technician of it, really. I don't really see myself as being a clown or, a, or somebody who desperately has to do it, but I kind of had an instinct for it, I guess, and then I worked out how it worked, and I thought it would be interesting to talk about that, but... Um, that alone doesn't make any sense. Mm. You know, it's, it, it's too dry. Uh, it reduces the thing to a science, and I don't think it is that. I think it's, it is genuinely... It, there is science to it, but there's genuinely more art to it, I think. Uh, Improvisation played a big part for you in Adelaide, starting off. Yeah, I did. I, amazingly, I did theatre sports. When I think back on... The, yeah, I, same. I'm, Loved I'm, it. I'm very... But I think back on that and think, who is that person? Because Really? Yeah, because it's such a brave thing to do to go out unarmed, because I'm a writer, really. But to go out with no material... But you're a spontaneous person. I guess so, but I, I always think for a paying audience that they deserve more than that. They well, deserve, shit impro, sure. They do. But good impro's great. Yeah, but you don't know it's going to be good until, no. the, until the end. That's and why you the go, tickets are never very expensive, <laughs> I think. Right. Well, I think that's fair enough. I think they should be free. Then you get your money's worth. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but I, no, I, as a younger person, I was happy to chance my arm a bit. I think as, as I got older, I found that I was less likely to be accepting an offer to go on and do impro. In fact, uh, thank God you're here, which is kind of a middle ground between you know, real improvisation and sort of... Uh, it's like endowments, isn't it? Does anyone know theatre sports? Endowments is a game that you played in theatre sports. I felt Thank God You're Here was more like... Because we did quite a few episodes yeah. on that show. It felt like a justification game, just a mainly a justification game where you would go on unarmed and then they would have organised this scene that was scripted and you just had to improvise your answers through it. Still one of the best ways I've ever seen improv work on television. I mean, I'll, I'll definitely say that. I agree, because they, they up the stakes by having a set and costume. Yeah, yeah. And you kind of had to work out who you were and where you were. And you could either play it two ways. I, and I tried both. I don't know about you. One mm. was to just be a, a victim of it. And you kind of... Uh, um, do, you, you know the sh uh, do you know the show? Uh, uh, thank God you're here. Do you know the show Mad as Hell? I should ask. Uh, does anyone know the show Mad as Hell? 
If you haven't, if you haven't heard of it, it's, kind of, it's a comedy version of The Weekly, just to give it context. I used to do that show and we finished in September. Uh, Charlie's not here, is he? He's not here. No, I. No. Uh, anyway, so yeah, you could you could kind of be a victim of it, and then and then get laughs out of coping with it, or you could do what, say, Frank Woodley would do, or Hamish Blake would do, and I, I had a crack at it a couple of times, where you deliberately do the opposite of what was expected of you and yeah. see what would happen. Yeah, yeah. And you did that a couple of times. I really went in very method. You went, you went in I like... I would go character, character every yes. time. Well, that's the only way I could deal with, deal with it, <laughs> I have to say. Go in there every time. But look, when you were 15, um, for a minute there, a counsellor at school asked you what you might want to do and for a minute there you thought you might be... A priest. A priest, yeah. And well, we were always told. I went to Amaris school and we were always told that by the brothers and by, the, by Monsignor Skian who turned up and said, you may, you may well hear a voice at night. Oh, he said, he said rather chillingly when I yes. look back on it, you may well hear a voice at night inviting you <laughs> to, be, to, be, uh, to join the priesthood. And if you hear that voice inviting you to join the priesthood, then you've got to say yes, boys. You've got to say yes. Oh my so I imagined that I heard that voice. I thought, wow, was that... Was that Sound like a dog barking, but I reckon that was probably God. That was probably what was he saying? I should kill someone or join the priesthood. I should join the priesthood. So I thought I'd join the priesthood. I'd be a good priest. I thought Did I was. You think that? I thought I was a good, very good at uh, dealing with conflict with some of the other boys in the classroom. I was very good. I was the peacemaker. You know, I was very good at that. Uh, so at the careers advisory uh, session, the. Uh, who was it? Brother Jordan. Brother Jordan. Brick of a man. Brother Jordan. Very red. I think sure that's why they called him a, a brick, not because he was, you know, rectangular, because he <laughs> was red like a brick. And he said, what do, you, what do you want to do when you leave school? And I said, oh, thank you for asking me, uh, brother. Uh, he said, get on with it. Yeah, all right. Uh, he, <laughs> I, would, I would like to be a priest. And he said, uh, how old are you? I said, I'm 15. He says, give it a couple of years. He's quite right too, because right? I don't think I was. Yeah, because the next that year we had our school social, and I Aww. met and fell in love with Karen Fleming. Her name was. Uh, uh, I can't remember what she looked like because we no. never took photos or anything like no. that, and uh, we never went out. And I don't think I saw her after that what, that <laughs> one dance we had. But uh, that was enough love. for me to uh, to disavow the priesthood. So, did you get to frock up as a priest? In thank God you're here. Did you ever do no, a sketch? No. Have you no. ever been a, a priest in a sketch just to see what it might have been like? I did one uh, for Ma early Matters Hell in the first season. Mm. I, I was a priest. <laughs> I was a priest at a vox pop sequence talking about. Uh, talking about the uh, idea of the glass confessional. I think that was, that was, that was being talked about at the time. I don't Bad know idea. if you remember that, the idea of the, metaphorically, I'm assuming, uh, although it, this particular priest took it literally and said, and he's saying, yes, yes, I'm all for the glass confessional because uh, that, way, that way it really fogs up when you, <laughs> when you hear some of those juicy sins. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you had a pretty tricky upbringing at school there. Gee. Oh, I, got, I, was, I was okay. Yeah, I was okay. Yeah, okay. I got out alive. Um, I love that uh, you often speak about the fact that if it wasn't for your wife, uh, Leandra, you might not have actually uh, gone into comedy because after 10 years of working in insurance law as a solicitor in Adelaide, it's hard to even grasp that sentence when it comes to Sean McAuliffe. You go, really? Pretty exciting. A working in insurance law as a solicitor... <clears throat> And you well, fall asleep, you're out. Well, you're Franz, out. Franz Kafka worked in an insurance office. And, you know, he, he enjoyed a very successful comedy career with his Eventually. books. 
McAuliffe moved to Melbourne to pursue full-time comedy after his wife insisted he try it or never talk about it again. <laughs> yeah, I was wondering... Right that lady there, yes. Well, I, I feel like we know that, that feeling. Yeah, she, no, she could see what I couldn't. I, I, never really thought, I never really thought being a comedian was a viable way to earn a living. I'm, not, I'm still not convinced it is. <laughs> But she sort of, she just said that, those very simple words. Because I would sit there and, I, you know, I'd be very jealous of anyone vaguely my age doing comedy. So, for example, The Late Show was on. And those guys, you know, the alumni, the now show. working dog. They're, yep. they're, but back in those days, they were uh, well, probably a couple of years younger than me. So I was, you know, I'd be sitting there like that. Oh. So you were a jealous person. You're really sitting there going, oh. oh I, couldn't, I couldn't handle it. I, uh, I, just, I just found it too threatening. I could laugh at anybody who was older than me, who was funny, but anybody who was my age. Right. <laughs> it's very strange. I couldn't, I, I mean, I knew they were funny. I absolutely knew they were funny. And of course they're funny. And, and it's, but it just didn't please me. You know, it didn't make me... I didn't really enjoy watching the show. Tony Martin is now a very good friend of mine. I've, I've shared this story with him and uh, said, yeah, I used, to, I, used to, I used to hate you the most because you were the funniest. <laughs> what a wonderful way to build a friendship. Let's <laughs> build it on hate. Built it on envy and hate. Yes, that's right. <laughs> but, um, but yes, so when she said that, I thought, yes, of course. Well, that's so nice. Uh, such a lovely thing Offer. to yeah. see, you know. And, and so I went away for a year. Uh, to Melbourne and she stayed in Adelaide. Oh, and right. I, used to, I would commute, yeah, just because I wasn't sure whether... And I was a writer. Like, I, I wasn't going to be an actor at all. Now, this I, fascinates me, yeah, because you didn't start off as a performer and when you read the stuff... Oh, I may have read bits of the book. Um, when you first go to Full Frontal, you're actually producing, writing, switching? Yes, and can I you was. explain what switching is? Yeah, when you're up in the up in the control booth, I was for some reason. This is not. How did you get that key? This is not a. This is not an indictment on how brilliant I was. This is how slack they were at Channel Seven. <laughs> Me, <laughs> like been in the been in the city there for about a month, I think, and been involved in television for a month, probably even less. They said, "Oh, you can do the alternate switch." So switching is when you when you've got five cameras in the studio and you're covering a sketch. So Ted, the director, he'd be going a uh, camera one, camera three, camera two, camera, be watching, you know, close up, wide shot, two shot, over the shoulder, whatever it was. And then my job was to actually switch the other cameras, there was called the ISO cameras, so if he did make a mistake or they wanted to change their mind in the edit, they would have these other alternate ones, uh, these alternate shots to use instead. So that was the idea, and they gave that job to me. So I'm up there switching away and not even looking at what Ted's doing, inadvertently doing exactly what Ted's doing, so all, <laughs> all they've got is exactly the same <laughs> cut that he's doing. Although occasionally I would do, I would turn on the camera that we weren't supposed to see, which would just be a close-up of, say, a, a vase or something. So, so if they needed a close-up of a vase, mine was the cut they used. <laughs> but but they, mean, did, they did give me enormous opportunity to, I would be doing that, I would go and watch them make the sets. I had nothing else to do. Mm. I would go and watch them make the sets. I would sit in the office and watch how the show was put together. I was the voiceover guy. And eventually... Uh, crept my way on as an extra. My first job was holding an umbrella in a golf scene with Eric Banner. Uh, and I, so I'm, I'm in the background, you know, trying to draw focus, and there's Eric. Whatever happened to Eric? Uh, what I, don't did he go and do? I don't know. I don't know. It's funny, people just disappeared. Yeah, I don't know. I never, never heard from him again. again. Oh, yeah, well. I certainly showed him. But I mean, 
did I mean I imagine though switching though watching those cameras do you learn something about comedy watching that in a different way to writing well certainly because my experience up until that point had been on stage where I could write stuff and I knew it was funny because the audience had laughed uh, but of course television's a very collaborative medium you've got about 150 people mm. helping you tell the joke you know so uh, yes I learned about the I learned the grammar and the language of television production through that experience and within gee one season they were they'd asked me to produce because they were making something else I don't think it was a real, as I say I don't think it was a real vote of confidence in me it's just that they were busy doing something else and they were sick of full frontal and who wasn't in 1994 uh, uh, I just I just want to say that I I did two seasons of totally full frontal which right. was the back end dying years of full frontal but Anyway, that's anyway, all right. Yeah. So uh, uh, we were, we'd already killed it. Yeah. And uh, and we just the, kept killing it. Well, no. By all the time the you got it. to it, it was reflex twitching. Well, no. What it is, what's interesting though, is that you know I will still look upon those years as the most amazing time to be able to do sketch comedy. Really? With yeah, because I got to be you know Helen Hunt and Mad About You and Elaine in Seinfeld and got to different things. Got to work with your amazing makeup artist Kachi Magya, uh, who does all your amazing work, and yep. and to have that fantasy of going, oh, this is what it's like to have to do a million sketches a day and. And I'd never done TV before in that way. It was it was it was like a school, like a learning. Well, it is a school, and it's a real pity that that a show because they would do twenty six episodes a year. These are hours; they would do commercial yeah. hours, so it's about forty five minutes. But you know, it's it's expensive too. It, it's very expensive, and but they don't do it anymore, no. so no one no one learns that particular craft. Mm. So a lot of most comedians that are on the telly now are stand ups. And they don't have that tradition of that more actorly approach of sketch comedy. And it is kind of a dying medium. You, you, I think there's one that Channel 7 are trying to, you know, crank up and run, which oh, is yes, great. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. But most of the time you'll find, if you like, say, use Auntie Donna as a more recent example, uh, they're on, uh, you know, they, they found their way not using television, not using old media. They came through the internet doing their own thing. I think people curate their own sketches on line that don't necessarily need somebody to say hey watch this show at this time and these sketches in this order they mm. just don't need that anymore mm. i mean mad as hell was a sketch comedy show it, there was a it was probably the last it was disguised as a as a um oh i have to start again now it was disguised as a as a satirical news program, but it really wasn't. It was a sketch comedy program. You've been it's you know, Mad as Hell is has wrapped up and it went for eleven years, fifteen seasons, hundred and seventy-two episodes. Incredible. Incredible. We got it right in the end. Last last episode was perfect. And you describe it as your dream job. Why was it a dream job? Well, it was a, a great confluence. So 11 years ago, we kind of asked all the people that, you know, the makeup people and all the heads of department used on Full Frontal and the McAuliffe program, which is another show I'd, I'd done on the ABC. Uh, the cast we wanted was all available. Mm. Everybody, the director, everybody was available. We had the production team that had done uh, Thank God You're Here, so I knew them really well. It was perfect it was everybody that I wanted to work with was available um, and it was a show that built out from the writers room which is how I prefer a show should be and how I think all 
program should be. You happen to be very fortunate to be working on a show at the moment, Fisk, that is built out from the writers' room. And from, a kitty, from, yeah. from kitty Flanagan and, and her sister, sister Penny. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think those are the best shows. Mm. You know, those are the best shows. And they're collaborative and they're built ultimately from the ground up. The ones that don't seem to work, in my angry man jaded opinion, are the ones that are made from the top down from executive producers who think, oh, this would be nice if we uh, had this sort of show and they kind of, you know, basically have to everything has to be submitted like it's a an ad uh, mm. executive sort of scenario so yeah in that way it was a dream job it built out from the writers room gary mccaffrey who's a probably this country's finest sketch writer and i have known each other since school oh uh, it does go that far back yeah he was i haven't a, read the book i don't know he, he, uh, far back. yeah well he 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 was at uh, sacred heart college the same as me he 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 was uh, two years older than me and and still is is he i have to be honest with you <laughs> Shame. He, and we've never we've never managed to kind to kind of Damn. catch up with each other. Oh. Uh, and Francis too, Francis Greenslade. Uh, I've been working with since we were eighteen. We both auditioned oh. at the same time at, for university. Oh, yes, yeah. yeah. Sadly, uh, sadly, Francis has passed away, and it's good to see that <laughs> members of the audience remember him. Uh, so you know, he's a, he's a beautiful guy, and we've tricked him. We Gary and I tricked him into wasting and squandering his talents on us for about forty five years. Unreal. I love that. So everything. Things in place, it's perfect, you yes. go, but there's no guarantee that Mattis Hall's going to go as long as it did. No, no. Well, well it's the ABC. I mean, out of sheer bloody-mindedness, they'll, they'll often commission two seasons of something, even if it's dreadful. Uh, Fisk is now in a second season, isn't Yeah, it? correct. Yeah. Uh, so, we were, yeah, we were lucky. Uh, we were lucky in that way. And, uh, you know, there had been a few shows that had come along since that, uh, like uh, Wednesday Night Fever, was a little bit similar in construction. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, Charlie's show, not that I'm suggesting Charlie's uh, copied, uh, you know, what we're doing. No. But he has. uh, so, yeah, so I just think there's a real, there was a real appetite for that sort of thing. And Mark Humphreys, too, of course, had done the roast and he continues to... He's uh, he, he wonderful. Um, but, uh, yeah, I think there's a real appetite in this country for that sort of Well, therefore, stuff. why are you ending it? Well, I, I, I just... I mean, you know, you're, some with, you're here with some of your closest friends. We're all here. This is a circle of trust and love. Yeah, that's very nice. And um, what why... What about that guy? I don't know. Um, well, I, you know, I, I, like I said, it's, it's the perfect job and I've, been very, I've had a very good summer, you know. I've been able to do mm. most of the time whatever I want. In any show that I've done, I've been able to do whatever I want. No one really says no. And they should. They should say no. I've, I've had more, as the book attests, more misses than hits. I mean, the, the audience, is, uh, Australian audience is very, very forgiving Give us a me. miss. Give us something you f- that failed that you can share with uh, us. McAuliffe Tonight was a chat show I did uh, for 13 episodes on Channel 9 in 2000. And you watched it. Loved it. In 2003, I think it was. And why did that not work? That didn't work because I'd never interviewed anybody in my entire life. Shit. And I think Channel 9, the Channel 9 executives, uh, had, I, I, I'd, I'd, had a good, I'd had a good opportunity. I was in Sea Change. Yeah. As the remember, du- yeah. I was in Sea Change in the third yeah. and coincidentally final season. <laughs> I was, so, so Laura, played by Sigrid Thornton, had had uh, Diver Dan, played by... Um, David, David Wenham. David Wenham in the first season, they were the, they were the couple. And the second season, it was uh, Max Connors, played by William McGuinness. And the third season, <laughs> it was uh, a fellow called Warwick Munro, played by me. But I mean, you had... I was 
was the love interest. But you handsomed up in your lady. I mean, you've, you're a ha- you ha- come on. I mean, you, you you got hit with the good stick of handsomeness, and that made a lot of sense. But didn't someone say that also the pitch was he was the dullest man in the world? Yeah, but that was a coincidence. Stop. <laughs> hey, I just come off playing Milo Kerrigan. Sure. Uh, anyway, so so you know, my my uh, the moon was in its seventh house, and that, oh. so I think they asked me to they asked me. Uh, whether I'd be interested. And half seen the McAuliffe program. They, they said, oh, in another room. And they said, oh, look, he's interviewing people. He must interview people. Not realising, of course, it was entirely scripted and it was a joke. Oh. So I, try, I, I tried. I do remember uh, Barry Humphreys was our very first guest. Can I tell you this story? Barry Please. Humphreys was our very first guest. Probably the only reason I said yes to it when they said they could get Barry Humphreys on. I love Barry Humphreys. I thought, this is great. I'll get a chance wow. to talk to him. You know, with the uh, with kind of the in in the environment, the approved environment, the 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 uh, given permission, the socially sanctioned environment of a TV show. Wonderful. I can disguise my fanboying by talking to him as if I'm, you know, an interviewer. Sure. So you know, he comes on. He's great. And he's sitting there. It's Barry Humphreys. Look, we're that that close to each other. He's got a camera, and I ask him a question. He starts answering, and and I'm nodding away, going, "That's Barry Humphreys." Uh, look at look at him. Barry Humphreys looks just like Barry Humphreys. And, and then as he's talking, I'm thinking, oh, now what's happening after the break? Oh, that's what we're having Gavin, Gavin and Woz from the block are coming on, aren't they? That's right. Oh, yeah, we got that gag worked out. And suddenly I realise I'm just not listening to his answer. This is live television, and I'm, I'm, listening, I'm, listening to, I'm listening not to him but to the voice in my own head, and I can hear his voice rising slightly. He's just about to end, and he's asked me a question at the end of his answer. And I haven't heard it. And uh, he finishes and stops and looks at me. And uh, I have to go, <laughs> no, but what I really wanted to ask you was, and hope that the topic I was introducing wasn't already covered by his answer. Oh, my God. So that was terrible. So I was not good. I was too busy thinking of other things uh, to really engage. And also the other thing was I was not, at that point, terribly good at improvising or ad-libbing or trusting myself without a script. Mm-hmm. So we used to write everything. Uh, it was it's the un- trusting yourself too. I mean, you were yeah. good. In, it's the, the trusting yourself is the hard part. I always think. Yeah, yeah, I think that's right. But uh, then later on, I did radio, not very well, but I did radio, and I did. Thank God you're here. And, and I think if I'd had those opportunities before I'd done the chat show, mm. it would have been much better. I think it would have probably been. It probably still would have failed, but it would have. It would have. I would have been more proud of it. <laughs> So with this this summer that you've had and now you, I mean, you made it clear it's been your decision to stop it, what are you going to do now? Well, I I genuinely wanted to hand the mic over. Mm. I think the the best thing someone like me, in fact me, can do, <laughs> let's get down to cases here, uh, you know, I'm, a, I'm a, 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 a gender of a certain hue, of a certain age, and uh, I think the best thing I can do is to say, the mic is yours, and then get off the stage, to be perfectly honest with you. I think maybe if people want me to help hmm. put together a TV show, I can do that, but, you know, there is a lot of fun in finding out how you do it yourself. You don't necessarily want somebody saying, oh, what you should do is this and what Mm. you shouldn't do is that. So that's what I think the best contribution I can make to those wanting to enjoy the limited resources of the ABC is just get the fuck off stage. (laughs) You know, give somebody else a go because I'm 60 years old, you Mm. know. And the the other thing, the the upside for me is that I can do things that are other people's and, Mm. and maybe get challenged and also help 
people realise their vision, what they, what the jokes they want to tell, or the, you know, if there's any value in casting me in anything, then then uh, I'm happy to do it. You know? Is that a big part of it too, the being challenged? Because I have to say, even though it wasn't completely my decision for home delivery to end, the, the challenge was starting to wane a little bit. And I think sometimes we need to scare ourselves in anything that we do to push ourselves to kind of get a bit scared, to get be out at sea a little bit, to truly feel like you're using all your skills or something? Yeah, well, I think I, want to, I always want to learn, you know. And <clears throat> one of the things that, one of the, thing, one of the things that always appealed to me about whatever I was offered was that if I'd never done it before, that was good enough reason to do it. Mm. I mean, I don't know about the audience uh, reaping the benefits of that, but, uh, um, and that was, the, uh, that's, I've been very fortunate. I've ne never acted in my life. I was offered a role in Sea Change, the most popular television show on television up to that point. You know, that's, mm. that's just amazing. I was, I'd never done a celebrity panel show. I was offered to do Thank God You're Here, mm. you know, mm. just uh, astonishing opportunities. So, I was, I've been very, very fortunate in that way and, uh, and probably not drawn to repeating myself too much. I mean, there is, there's sometimes, the, the, sometimes I do want to go back and get it right, and I've had a couple of cracks at sitcoms, but I've just never been able to quite crack it, you know? Like, Fisk, Fisk does it for, you know, when I watch it, I go, of course, that's how you do it, but I could never do that. Mm. And, uh, and Kitty and I come from the same, we come from the same sort of sketch comedy uh, gene pool, and uh, she, damn her to hell, has got it right. And I never qu could quite do it. And that's okay. I mm. mean, you know, I don't expect to be good at it. I think that's the great strength I have, ladies and gentlemen, is to be middlingly successful without any really big hits and without any really massive failures. And, and I've just kind of just gone, gone along, blipping along, barely alive for 35, 40 years. That's the way to succeed in this country. I, well... <laughs> don't be either good or bad. Just be in the middle. Just be in the middle. Just, just be keep too your, shit. Keep your head um, down. I think too, though, I've got to say, there's a lot of people out there with talent, but if you're a punisher, no one wants to hang out with you and people want to hang out with you, Sean, because you're good value. That's oh, the other that's thing. So, nice. you know, Thank you. you don't want to be the punishers. Thank you. Don't be with the punishers. Oh. Now, um, start thinking of questions. Start, if you've got a question, put your hand up and someone will find you with the microphone. So stick that hand up nice and high if you've got a question. It can be about anything. Uh, it doesn't have to be about show business or my life. Oh, wow. It can it be, be anything. I know a little bit about plate tectonics. <laughs> if anyone Great. is interested, I was pretty good at geology. Go ahead. First question right here. Uh, hi, I'm Oscar. Hello, I'm Oscar. 11, yes. And I ask everyone this question. Yes. Which one is better, pancakes or waffles? Oh. Wow. Uh, I'm surprised Julia didn't ask me that first up. Thank you, Oscar. I've never eaten a waffle, Oscar. I've never had one, um, but I have had a pancake. So I'm not the best person to ask. I've only experienced 50% of the options that you've presented to me. So I'm going to have to go with what I've not done. I enjoy a challenge. I'm going to have to say waffle. Wow. Thank you, Oscar. What well do you done, mean? You. Thumbs did, up. Did you really? Did you ask Helen Garner that in the previous <laughs> segment? Oscar, I can't believe it. Next question. Hello. Um, I know you're a big Jerry Lewis fan as well. What's sure. your favourite Jerry Lewis bit? Uh, favourite Jerry Lewis bit? Wow. I reckon it's probably, I, I think what, uh, a lot of people say The Nutty Professor is the, is the best of his films, but I actually quite like The Patsy. The Patsy is a film about what makes a comedian funny. It's quite interesting that he would want to do that. I actually, I had the good fortune of meeting him uh, when he came to Australia and asked him about that film. 
And he said, uh, he said, yeah, 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 this, that, that's interesting because it's, it's one of his favorite topics. And he said that he was promoting the Nutty Professor and he just got so sick of, uh, of everyone needing something from him and wanting it. He, he wondered aloud to himself, if I died, what would happen to, you know, if, if I just took my life, what would happen to these people, these, these hangers-on, which is what the film's about, essentially. I mean, it's a comic treatment of it, but... It's basically that. And uh, his answer, I guess, in the film is, oh, they just find somebody else, which is what they do. They just find some bellboy and they just make him a big comedy star. Mm. So, uh, I, yeah, it was, it's in, so for that reason, I think the film has a kind of deeper significance than you would expect from a Jerry, Jerry Lewis film. Uh, yeah, so, uh, yeah, he was a big, I don't know, I think because I was skinny and uh, clumsy and stuff, I think I just related to him quite a lot and just... I can still see in stuff that I do, I can still see that I'm kind of, I've absorbed a bit of, you know, him into my matrix a little bit. Uh, but even with all those Dean Martin films, you could see that Jerry was the brain in the room. Yeah, yeah. And just such enormous energy. I mean, I like mm. anybody, any comedian giving 110%, you know. That's why I like Jim Carrey. I mean, mm. whatever you think about the end result, just anyone who's going to bear their neck and, uh, and, and is basically saying to the audience, you know, here I am, love me. I just think that's very bold. Very it's a bold. very vulnerable position to put yourself in. Oddly enough, as a comedian, I'm more of a sit back, come to me kind of comedian, I think. Really, I don't tend to. I can do the clowning stuff, but I haven't done it for many years. But do you feel the vulnerability within it sometimes? Because whilst on the one hand, you know, we enjoy feeling the warmth of the laughter and feeling the wave of it and knowing when to come in and stop and ride it. But what about the vulnerability within it? Because you, 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 be, you can't do what you do well and not have that. No, you, you do. You, you chance your arm. If the, if the audience doesn't laugh, then, you're a, uh, then you'd cease to exist in a way. There's no reason for you to be there. I think in drama you can kind of fool people into thinking it's good when it isn't. You know, mm. you can kind of... There's a few different shades in there uh, and you can... You know, you speak to anybody about an actor and they go, oh, he's, he or she's wonderful, wonderful actor, but other people won't like them at all. But mm. with a comedian, uh, if you don't get a laugh from the audience, you better know how to save yourself. You better have a saver laugh or you, you've absolutely got to be able to do that or you just have no right to be on stage. During COVID, you, your show Mad as Hell continued, but you had no audience. Yeah. What was that like? What was the difference? Well, we kind of done that with Newstopia. We'd, we'd had an audience uh, with a similar... Sh we had no audience with a similar show. So for me, it wasn't, wasn't a big deal. It was less... Um, it was less satisfying. It became more of a technical exercise, you know, where I was going, I know, I know we'll, we'll be in the edit suite and put the show together. Um, but there is something about a, a, an audience and everything, everything I do is, a, is frustrated theatre, really. It's the same. Well, you, everything you do is frustrated theatre because it's all, it's, whether it's fiscal, whether it's anything on television or anything on film, the only reason you're doing it is because you have once performed on stage in front of a live audience. Mm. And if you've got comedy muscles and timing, it's because of that. So um, having a studio audience, not quite the same as having a wonderful, you know, paying audience that comes along. Did you pay for this? <laughs> How much were the tickets? 65 bucks. How much? 65 bucks. Really? How much did you pay? 25? 30. 30. Oh, that's good value, big show like this. 
You know? I think one of the things I loved you most in was Good Evening. It was a show that you did with Stephen Curry based on Peter Cook and Dudley Moore material. material. Who saw, saw that? Did you see that, that show? show? Yeah. That's the best. Well, if you do a sketch, you don't have to do the best possible sketches. Oh. And that's the, but the but they could so have easily gone wrong. You know, no, it could it so, you know, it's, it's imitation. It's, it's, it's a great form of doing it. You, you had, had brilliant Mark Jones on piano playing with you, but it was such a satisfying night in the theatre of just gags and showmanship and, 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 and camaraderie. It was a great idea. Yeah, yeah. Well, Stephen and I, we've, for some reason, we just get on really well and that's, that was integral to it. I think if we'd just been two actors, it might, you know, you miss a layer. You know. And the kernel of that was when you did the Graham Kennedy show, The King? Is yeah. that where he came out of that? Yeah, we got on very well. I mean, Stephen can probably get on with anybody. He, you know, Agreed. He's very, very likeable. And he was in the most recent episode of Fisk, I believe. Yes, he was, playing um, a, 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 like a Samuel Beckett-type character, yeah. nephew who will not give up the rights to his play because it can only be played by men. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> um, but he, he, yeah, he, so he and I played. One of the interesting things, I hope this is interesting, that we discovered in doing the Cook and More material is that we could tell, um, because what we did was essentially get the Samuel French version of their show Good Evening, which is basically built up as a transcript built on the original script. So you, you've got the ad-libs in there that they would have come up with over the course of the season, uh, but it's in its form as part of the script. So you can't tell what was originally an ad-lib and what was originally, you know, written. Um, but we were able to work it out in performance. We go, sometimes the audience would give you permission to go off on a bit of a tear. And I thought, oh, okay, well, that, that must be this bit. And if the audience was a little quieter, we'd just jump over it, which is what they would have done. Mm. So we ended up uh, kind of re redrawing the script. So we had stuff in italics, which was their original ad libs. We never went over that. We never started ad libbing ourselves. Maybe in between the sketches we did, but but not during the sketches. I thought I found that a, re a fascinating archaeological experience to work out how lines had suggested themselves. And that's the thing with an audience. You know, the audience, you don't make an audience laugh. You just hopefully create an environment where they have permission to laugh, you know. So it really is a two-way street. And, you, and any theatre show should be different from night after night because the audience is, you didn't come en masse, uh, did you? <laughs> You know, so you'll come separately, you're all individual people or couples or whatever. Uh, so I never understand it when a comedian says, oh, they were terrible, that audience were terrible, you know, they were just dead. It's not their fault. Mm. If you can't muster them as a, as a comic or an actor, uh, if you can't get everybody together on the same page to laugh at the same, more or less the same time at the, at the jokes, then you failed, you know. Well, we used to feel, like I've done a few plays, we used to feel like Thursday night was the magic night, though, because people were not too tired yet from work. They knew the weekend was coming and they'd be very engaged. On a Friday night, people were just exhausted. And on Saturday, they had had some time to themselves. They were happy to go out. They'd had something to eat but they were maybe more judgmental or something. Maybe they were quite awake or something. So Thursday night was always this lovely sweet spot of, hmm, Thursday night audience, mm -mm, bring them to me. A beautiful time. No, it's your fault. It's <laughs> now, in this book, there are some beautiful moments as well. And one moment that I 
uh, really related to, really related to. It may even made me cry a little. Oh, what? Yes. Oh, how'd that um, get in there? No, maybe because, you know, you're obviously a fan of film mm. and this is a lovely passage and there's lots of lovely bits like this. So if you just want to read from sure. this. He doesn't even know what bit I want him to read. Oh, which bit? From it there, is. Where it says and then you can turn the page. Oh, this is from once. Yeah, yeah, from once, and it's about you and your dad. Okay, once, once we were both watching the sunset over the water at Glenelg Beach. There's something you don't see every day, he said. I resisted the urge to be a smartass and point out that a sunset was exactly the sort of thing <laughs> that you see every day. As the sky plunged into a Tiapolo orgy of pink and blue with shafts of golden light stretching out from behind the clouds, I knew what he meant. And it was nice to see things through his eyes sometimes. We'd often go to the beautiful old Art Deco Capri cinema up the street from the orphanage on Goodwood Road, a revival house with a huge Wurlitzer organ that would rise Dr. Fibes-like out of the floor as curtains parted either side to reveal glass-panelled booths full of synchronised automata. The Capri showed silent films and the occasional foreign one, Charlie Chaplin and Jacques Tati, were my favourites. My fondest memory of my dad is watching the scene in Monsieur Hulot's holiday where an old married couple are walking along the beach at night, the wife in front, ooing and ahhing over the shell she's picking up, the husband plodding along behind, taking the shell she's handing back to him, giving, the most, giving them the most perfunctory of once-overs and then tossing them away. <laughs> As the two of us... My dad and I quietly laughed along together. Beautiful. Beautiful memory. That's my dad. Yeah, beautiful. I, I, my father and I had a long-standing uh, weekly dinner movie date time. Right. And it, it, they are beautiful. And the fact that they're, they're French films as well, because, you know, my dad was French too. But, um, but just those moments of togetherness, those moments, because in Who Do You Think You Are, you say at one point when you've talked to your dad, this is the most you and I have spoken in our whole entire <laughs> lives. We should do this every 49 years. And um, It's true. Like yeah. it, was a, it was only a 45-minute conversation, but, it, you know, he didn't talk much. And as, yeah. as a, lot of, a lot of people who lived through the war yeah, yeah. didn't particularly want to talk about it, and they were quite happy with the dull, monotonous life we had in, uh, in Adelaide. But just know? that looking at the sunset, and that's oh, not yeah. something you see every day, and you're going, oh, I really want to say something now, yeah. but I won't, no. uh, is, is a beautiful thing. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful book, and um, I, I highly encourage everybody, obviously, to go and get it, if it's of interest. Like, if it's not of interest, I probably wouldn't go. But um, <laughs> get it. But, um, but in it too, there is uh, just, we'll finish off with just uh, this fantastic bit where you spend three days with Russell Crowe. Oh, yeah. You want me to read all that out? No, but I just want you to give us a flavour of what they can expect from reading it. Oh, man. That was, uh, you know, he's a, you know, you've heard of Russell Crowe? Yeah. Uh, yeah, Andrew Denton was, uh, had, had uh, hand-passed me this, this gig. He was, uh, Russell was going to host the AFIs. Uh, the Australian Film Institute Awards that are now the Arctas, the Australian Academy right. something of something arts. And uh, he, he, he rang me up, Russell Crowe rang me up uh, as a result of Andrew giving him my phone number and, uh, and said, uh, we're going to do a lot of political stuff, a lot of political stuff and really make fun of the arts minister and the arts policy. And I said, 
I was a very political person at that time, I said, oh, really? Do we even have an arts policy? <laughs> he laughed and he said, yeah, just like that. That's what we want. He's, 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 got a, he's got a very interesting laugh, Julie. He's got a very high-pitched, girly laugh. <laughs> <laughs> That's how he was laughing on the phone. <laughs> Stuff like that, yeah. I mean, you never, in any movie I've seen of his, and I've seen a lot of them, he never laughs like, not, not even in Gladiator. I've never, <laughs> I didn't hear him laugh. Anyway, yeah, three days in a room with Russell, uh, and he was, uh, he... I came in one day. Okay, so he was eating a lot of macrobiotic food. He was very was he? fit. This is this is this is twenty twenty years ago. Shit. Very fit. Not eating any anything no. fatty or anything like that. Just some kale. Thing. And he's lying on the ground eating, you know, eating kale out of a bowl. And uh, you know, he's kind of everyone wants a bit of him because he's an A-lister. He's Russell Crowe, you know. And I came in there and he was had the kale in one hand and he's leafing through this swatch of fabric with the other. And I said, oh, hi, Russell. And I sat down with a pen out, ready to go, you know. He said, yeah, yeah, Baz, uh, Baz has sent me this. I said, oh, Baz, 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 Baz Lerman. Baz Lerman wants me to be in a film. Yeah, he's just sent me this. It's a swatch of this, the tones and textures he's going to be using for the costumes. He's going through them, listen, and I said, oh, right, what's the script like? No, he hasn't sent me a script. <laughs> I said, what? So he, he wants you to say yes or no to the film on the basis of the fabrics that he's using. Wow. I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, that was Australia. Of course, he never did it, so I guess, I I guess Hugh Jackman enjoyed the swatch. I bet. Yeah. There's so much more in the, in the book on that story. It's quite hilarious. Would you please thank the magnificent Sean McCullough? Oh, thank you, Julia. You're pretty well. I mean, Someone it, didn't read the book. It's been a time. It's been a time. And Julia, can I congratulate you on Fisk? Yes, you may. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank and you. Uh, I hope to return the... Return the favour when you oh. come out with your book. Well, I was asked to write a book once and I got so nervous I had to give the advance back because it just felt like too much hard work. I couldn't quite manage it. All right. Well, uh, well done. Would you please thank uh, <laughs> Julia Zamiro, ladies and gentlemen. You've been listening to Julia Zamiro in conversation with Sean McAuliffe. This event was part of the Wheeler Centre's Spring Fling, a short series of Big Ideas programme, supported by the Melbourne City Revitalisation Fund, a Victorian Government and City of Melbourne partnership. The Wheeler Centre podcast is produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri and Woiwurrung people of the Kulin Nation. You can listen to more podcasts or explore videos, news and our full calendar of events at wheelercentre.com.